Howdy, welcome back to another episode of our weekly podcast. We know you've got a buffet of media to choose from each week. That's why we put a lot of effort into finding stories from the Bible that have relevant lessons for us today. I hope you enjoy. I am Angelo, an angel from the realm of glory. I am one of a special group of angels that are known as recorders. Our mission is to record things that take place on earth and preserve them so that in the future others will be able to look back and know how things were. I have been recording the history of earth since its beginning, and as time passed, my mind is filled with questions as to how God would be able to fulfill his promise to deliver his people. Very few people are studying the prophecies. They're still going to church and offering sacrifices, but it's just a routine. The people have no idea what the sacrifices represent or why they're even going to church. One day as I'm contemplating this dilemma, Gabriel came to me and said that the father had a very special assignment for me. He told me that it was just about time for his son to go to the earth and to become a man. And God wanted me to record that glorious event, but this time from the perspective of an angel. He wanted me to tell the story, not just the facts, but also with how the angels felt as they witnessed the greatest event in history so far. I was excited and humbled with this new assignment. How would I ever be able to put into words how the angels felt about the creator of the universe becoming one of his creatures? My mind had wrestled with this very question ever since I heard about it. I remembered the Son of God coming from a meeting with his Father when they first explained the plan of salvation to every angel in heaven. We all fell at his feet and pleaded with him not to do it. We begged him to find another way. There were even some angels who offered to go and be the sacrifice. But our precious leader explained that an angel couldn't pay the price. It had to be him. What will heaven be like without Jesus? The music will not be the same. How can we sing when he is down there living in all that filth and sin? Somehow I can't imagine the streets of gold shining if Jesus isn't walking on them. Or the tree of life bearing fruit while he is eating barley loaves and fish. I know that he will come back because the Father and the Son told us that they would be victorious. That this was the only way. Even with that knowledge, I'm having a hard time. Heaven won't be heaven without him. I remember how Moses told the children of Israel that the Lord would raise up a prophet likened to himself and that the people should follow him. All the angels knew that Moses was talking about the Messiah, that this was a prophecy about Jesus. As I contemplate this prophecy, I begin to wonder how will the Messiah be like Moses? Will the king try to kill him right from his birth? Will a princess rescue him? 
Will he live in a palace and become a great warrior? Maybe he will lead the Jews out of Roman captivity and they will once again become a great nation. I wonder, will the Jews follow him or will they rebel at the first sign of trouble? I remember from all the adults that came out of Egypt, only Caleb and Joshua entered the promised land. Is that how it will be with Jesus? With only a few true followers to support him? If so, it will be a very long and lonely time for him. I wish I could become a human so he wouldn't have to walk that path alone. As I think about the sanctuary service and the sacrifices, I look with new wonder at the lambs as their throats are cut and they are laid upon the altar. Is that what's going to happen to Jesus? I remember how Abraham offered Isaac and God stopped him just before the knife plunged into the soft flesh and God accepted his intention. Will God accept Jesus' offer to die and stop the knife again? Somehow I don't think so. Because the prophecies of David and Isaiah don't give any, any indication that this will happen. In fact, it sounds so much worse than just having his throat cut resulting in a quick death. Will God actually allow his son to die? Will he allow him to be tortured and abused like some wild beast? How will we be able to watch this and not help him? How will God be able to watch and not send all the angels of heaven to defend his only son? Then I recall that Jesus isn't just the Lamb of God, but he is also the Lion from the tribe of Judah. The Messiah will be of the lineage of David. David was a mighty warrior. He defeated everyone he faced in battle. He brought peace to a nation. Yet his own son turned on him and rebelled. Will Jesus, Jesus have one of his own betray him? Oh, a betrayal like that will break his heart. Gabriel interrupts my thoughts when he comes to tell me that at the next new moon he will go down to earth and tell a young girl that she has been chosen to be the mother of the Son of God. He said that the Father wanted me to search the earth for the woman that I would choose for this great honor. Well, I started by looking at all the nobles in Jerusalem. I thought surely someone from the line of David would have the qualifications for this important task. I looked for a young woman with grace, education, and a love for God. Certainly there was one like this in Jerusalem, but I searched every house. And not one maiden did I find that was qualified for this responsibility. I expanded my search to all of Judea and came up empty again. I began looking everywhere there were Jews to try and find a young woman who I thought could be the mother of the Son of God. There wasn't a single maiden of influence or standing among them. There were some that almost fit the bill, but there was always something that worried me. It might be pride or selfishness, a desire for recognition or attachment to possessions. Well, the only place left to look was among 
the peasants, the poorest and those looked down upon by society, would God pick the mother of his son to be from this class? If this was the case, then his son wouldn't have any advantage. He would have to work from the moment he was strong enough to work. There would be times when he would go hungry because there just wouldn't be enough food to feed him. He wouldn't be able to go to school because there wouldn't be any money for an education. Would the nobles, priests, and scribes even listen to him if he were a nobody? It was looking to me like the deck was stacked against him, and he hadn't even come yet. God wasn't giving his son any advantage. He was going to have it rough right from the start. Well, I have to confess that I came up empty on the task of picking a mother for the Son of God. I knew it would be difficult, but I thought I would be able to find one, or maybe two, with all the Jews in the world to choose from. When I reported to Gabriel that I didn't think that there was a woman alive who could fill this important role, he invited me to observe as he went to ask the girl that God had chosen. Well, I was excited. Who was this maiden? What would she be like? What had I failed to see that God hadn't? We went to Nazareth. I shuddered as we went through town. Nazareth wasn't just on the wrong side of the tracks. It was on the wrong side of everything. If I was going to pick one place not to raise a child, it would be Nazareth. It was filled with uncouth, uneducated people. Crime was high and tempers were short. And the influence of the people would not lend itself to an easy childhood. Yet this was the place God found his son's soon-to-be mother and the place where his son would grow up. When Gabriel told Mary what he had come for, she simply said, may it be done to me according to your word. The only question she had was, how could this happen since she was still a virgin? Gabriel told her that the Holy Spirit would come upon her, for nothing is impossible with God. What faith. So this is what God was looking for. Someone who would believe what he said. I then remember that's what God said about Abraham, that he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Oh yes, righteousness. It's about what God does and not what we do. I look at this girl who will soon be married to a man more than twice her age and with children already almost as old as she is. She isn't going to have an easy time either. She will need all that faith to just make it from day to day. I watch as the realization of what is happening to her begins to wash over, just as the child that is in her begins to grow. Who will ever believe that she, a peasant girl from Nazareth, is the mother of the Messiah? Her, all, her mother already suspects that something is different. She looks at her with worry in her eyes. The unasked question is, 
have you done something that will bring dishonor to the family? Well, it isn't long before the tongues begin to wag as people notice her swelling belly. The gossips in town rush to the carpenter shop to tell Joseph that his betrothed has played the harlot. They want to know what he is going to do about it. The look of hurt, anger, and betrayal are written all over his face as he struggles to control his emotions. I want to shout and tell them that the greatest event in history is about to take place, that Emmanuel has come. Instead of questioning Mary's morals, they should be rejoicing and honoring her because as the mother of the Messiah, the hope of all mankind is here. There isn't anyone whom Mary can tell that will believe what she is trying to tell them about the visit from the angel and about the child that grows larger every day within her. The joy and wonder that she felt at Gabriel's announcement has now changed to fear and loneliness. All the respectable girls that used to be her friends now shun her. Their parents don't want them to associate with a girl like Mary. They are afraid that their daughters won't be able to get good husbands if they are seen together, you know, guilt by association. As Mary walks to the market, people point at her and make her all kinds of cruel insinuations about her. Some of the crudest men even proposition her as if she were a prostitute. She can't hide the tears that flow down her face. My heart is breaking for. I want to shine in the glory of heaven before all of them and wrap her in my arms. I want to shout at the top of my voice, leave her alone as the light of heaven engulfs her. But all I can do is watch and record. A group of young men come around the corner and spot her as she tries to rush home with a little bit of dignity that she has left. They quickly overtake her and the rude insults fly. Satan and his force is all around. The sky is thick with darkness. The ringleader of the group calls the baby a bastard, an illegitimate child. All heaven is hushed and silent at this cruel insinuation. This child that they are making fun of isn't illegitimate. He is the son of God. His father is none other than the king of the universe. And they dare to insult the father, the son, and his mother. I wait for God to send lightning, fire, or an earthquake to punish the crowd that is forming. For him to thunder from heaven that this is his son. But there is nothing but silence. I'm amazed and awed by the patience and love of God for these people that he created. Mary gets home and falls upon her mother's lap as the sobs rack her small body. Another battle is raging down the street in the home of Joseph. As the talk around town increases, the elders insist that Joseph needs to have Mary stoned or at least divorce her. They say for the good of the community, this type of behavior cannot be tolerated. As the elders leave his humble shop, 
he decides to put Mary away quietly with as little attention as possible. She has suffered enough already. His heart is heavy and sad. He had looked forward to their marriage. It would have been nice to have the sound of a woman's voice in the home again. He thought that Mary would be a good influence upon his children. He sighs deeply. Tomorrow he will go see her father and put this matter to rest and then move on with the rest of his life. During the night, Gabriel appears to him in a dream and tells Joseph not to divorce Mary, that the Holy Spirit conceived the child and that she has been telling the truth all along. Gabriel tells Joseph that he is to name the child Jesus because he is going to save his people from their sins. When Joseph doesn't divorce Mary, the insults begin to be hurled at him. The people think that the reason he doesn't divorce her is because the child is his and that if he tried to get rid of her, she would speak in her own defense. People can be so cruel and jump to conclusions. If only they would mind their own business. Mary's parents decide to send her away to a relative's home in the hill country. What a blessing this is for her. Here she finds that Elizabeth not only understands, but she also believes her story about the baby. The few months that they are together are some of the best months of her life. With the help and support of Zacharias and Elizabeth, Mary's faith grows and her dependence upon God becomes her anchor. When she returns to Nazareth, there's a hurried marriage. There isn't any celebrating at this wedding. The town doesn't come together to wish the couple a long and happy marriage. It's done in a quiet manner with almost no one to witness it. Mary's parents are embarrassed and they want this done as quickly and quietly as possible. No sooner are they married than they are hit with another blow. Caesar Augustus has issued a decree that a census is to be taken and everyone must go to their birth city to be registered and taxed. By now, Mary is over eight months pregnant. Just walking around and trying to take care of the family leaves her exhausted. Her feet are swollen and each morning she feels sick. How will she ever be able to make the trip to Bethlehem? The trip will take days. It's almost 100 miles to Bethlehem. How will they get there? They're so poor they don't even own a donkey. And there isn't a cart for Mary to ride in. Mary breaks down and starts crying at the thought of walking all that way. In the morning, they begin their long and arduous trip. But God hasn't forgotten the mother of his son. There are people who will take pity on Mary and they will invite her to ride in their cart. They try to make her as comfortable as possible, but that's just impossible. Every bump and jolt is torture to her. When they stop for the night, she is so stiff and exhausted that all she can do is fall upon the ground, wrap up in her little blanket, and attempt to sleep. Finally, they crest the last hill and begin their descent into Bethlehem. 
Just as Mary gets out of the cart, her water breaks. A kind woman waits with her as Joseph rushes from home to home and from end to end, desperately seeking a place for his wife to give birth. At each door, he hears the same reply. We are full, go away. As he tries to explain their emergencies, many doors are slammed in his face. People tell him that it's not their problem. Problem? The son of God, a problem? The angelic host that had been watching over this precious family is amazed at the indifference shown to them. Where are the priests who are studying the scriptures? They know that the time is here. They understand Daniel's prophecy. They have calculated when Messiah is to come, yet no one is here to greet him. They haven't made any preparation for him. I search each and every dwelling, looking for someone, anyone who might be seeking the Messiah. If I can find someone seeking their deliverer, then I can announce that he is here And they would invite Mary in so that she can deliver God's son in their home. But I find no one. What a blessing has been missed because no one is looking. No one cares. They finally find refuge in a crude building where animals are kept. The building is disgusting. It's filthy, dark, and it stinks. It's covered in animal dung. Will God allow his son, the savior of the world, to be born here? Our wings droop. Not one angel can speak. Tears begin to run down our cheeks. God has sent the choir from heaven to announce the birth of his son. We search diligently for someone to tell. They have been practicing their song for nine months and they're about to burst with this exciting news. But they can't find anyone to sing to. I'm ashamed to record that there isn't anyone to tell. Just then, another angel comes flying swiftly to us and tells us that a group of shepherds on the hills outside of town are discussing their hope for the coming Messiah. They have studied the prophecies and they know it's time. They wonder when and how it will happen. We rush over and light up the sky with the glory of heaven. The choir belts out the songs of joy with renewed energy. The hills are aglow, but only these few who are looking for the Messiah can see this glorious sight. The rest of the town sleeps as if nothing has happened. When I go back to the barn, I find that the Son of God has been born and is sleeping in a feed trough filled with clean hay. He is wrapped in strips of cloth, but there isn't any soft blanket. There isn't a pillow. There isn't anyone to guard and protect the baby king. There are just two people exhausted by their long journey and the birth of a baby. Again, I feel tears run freely down my face. I'm told that there are some magi in the Far East that are studying the prophecies and looking for the deliverer. I quickly fly to where they are and listen in on their conversations. They say that they have seen his star 
and they set out at once to follow it. They travel every night following the star, and when they stop each morning, they discuss what they hope to find. I haven't found anyone in all of Israel with this kind of dedication and interest in the coming Messiah. Their journey takes weeks, but they never grow weary of their search. In fact, the longer it takes, the more excited they get with anticipation about what they will find. Finally, the star stops in Jerusalem, right over the temple. They rush into the city, expecting it to be filled with people celebrating the newborn king. But all they find is business as usual. There aren't any banners. No one is talking about it. They rush to the temple to talk to the priest. Surely these men will know where they can find the baby king. Instead, they are rebuffed and insulted. The priests look down their noses at them because they are Gentiles. The priests don't know that this baby is the king of everyone, not just the Jews. Well, the priests send them away and tell them that they have wasted their time. The news of their arrival in Jerusalem has made its way into the palace and Herod wants to see them. I have a bad feeling about this meeting. Herod is a cruel, hateful person. His ascension to the throne is already covered in much blood. He pretends to be interested in their news about a baby king. He tells the Magi to search diligently for the child And let them know when they find him, so that he too can go and worship him. The Magi are excited about this visit. Finally, someone believes them and has shown interest in their news. As night falls, they see the star. And with newfound strength, they once again set out on their mission. It is with great joy that they see that the star is stopped over a humble home in Bethlehem. They are again surprised to find no guards, no celebration, no interest from the people. They begin to doubt their mission. But once inside the house, as they see the child, the Holy Spirit speaks to their hearts, and they know that this is he whom they are seeking. They joyfully give their gifts and return to their own country by a different route because an angel warns them about Herod's real intentions. When Herod realizes the Magi aren't coming back, he is furious. He uses the information that he extracted from the priests to launch his next attack. He sends a death squad to Bethlehem to kill all the male children two years old and younger. Knowing what Herod is going to do, God warns Joseph in a dream to take the child and leave at once for Egypt and to stay there until he receives another message informing him that it is safe to return to Israel. As I watch this humble family trudge the dusty road towards Egypt, I am overcome with grief at what they've had to endure already. This child isn't even two years old and he already has to flee for his life. Is this what he has to look forward to for the rest of his life? I'm amazed at the indifference of the leaders of the Jews. Not one of them checks out any of the stories about the Messiah being born 
They're so self-righteous and so full of themselves because they know the prophecies. They know that they are God's people. They think they know everything, but in reality, they don't know anything at all. All their knowledge proves to be their ignorance. They trusted in that knowledge and not in what God says. They missed the very event all of them are looking for. As I contemplate this great tragedy, I begin to wonder if history will be repeated. Is it possible that at the end of time, God's people again miss the very event that they say they are waiting for, the second coming of the Son of God? They will have the prophecies. They will know that the time is near. They will be well-educated. But none of these things will matter if they trust in them instead of God. Just as God sent the angelic choir flying through the heavens to proclaim the message of his son's first coming, so it will happen again just before his son's second coming. For God told us that he would send three angels with a special message for his people to help them to be ready for it. The only question is, will anyone be watching? Will anyone be listening? Thank you so much for listening. We record these messages each week at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Adairsville. And if you're ever in the area, we'd love to see you. Stop in and say hi and enjoy some good Southern food with us. We'll see you next week.